When you remember back uh, maybe two years, maybe three years, maybe 30, 50, 60 years to driver's education, one of the first things, I don't know how long y'all have been driving, one of the first things that they teach you in driving is to be aware of your blind spots. Now, there are engineers who are building cars that were smart enough to help us by putting lots of mirrors in our cars to help us to see behind us and all around us. You know that the worst blind spot in your car is over, the, over your right shoulder on the passenger side if you're driving in the States, if you're driving in other places of the world, it's over your left-hand shoulder. But that passenger side blind spot that is there. Uh, so uh, pernicious is that blind spot that, that cars now have those blind spot uh, detectors, right? Maybe you have a little light on your rearview mirror that lights up when there's someone in your blind spot. I was riding with a friend the other day. He's got a fancy car with a camera in the rearview mirror that will show you the cars that are in your blind spot to help remove that so that you don't have some sort of accident, some sort of wreck, some sort of disaster on the road as you're driving. Blind spots are dangerous in driving. Blind spots are more dangerous when it comes to the gospel and it, when it comes to the life of the church. In Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through chapter 11, verse 18, we are going to see the Apostle Peter have a blind spot in his theology revealed to him. It's a tough one for him to deal with. It is one, it is a blind spot that when revealed becomes so obvious that it changes, literally changes the course of gospel ministry from that point onward. It is the blind spot that Peter and the other apostles at the time up to this point had of not seeing that the gospel uh, is not only for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. Today, Peter, will see, he'll have this blind spot of, of the gospel being only for Jews revealed to him and, and to be shown that, that the gospel is also for the Gentiles, is for people of every tribe, nation, tongue, and race. Um, raise your hand this morning, if, if just by show of hands, if you, are, if you are not born of Jewish descent, if you are a Gentile this morning, raise your hand. Okay, look, this text today is for you, okay? You are the recipient of the good news of this text today. Now, there's a lot that happens in Acts chapter, the end of 9 and through 10. But what I want to do is to begin by reading a summary of all that happens from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Oh, before I do that, I came with tricks today. There, uh, I, we're going to look at some, there's a lot of geography today, okay? And uh, there's a, a lot of uh, cities and places that are going to be uh, mentioned can, can you see that little red dot on, on, let's see, will it move? There we go. Now it's moving. Okay. Well, it's not moving very well. Come on, projector, help me out. Where are you at? There we go. Okay. So, fantastic. Here's Jerusalem right here. Jerusalem is kind of like the central hub for gospel ministry uh, in, in the, in all throughout Acts. This is where Pentecost happens in Acts chapter 2. It's kind of the, uh, the home base for the apostles throughout their ministry. Uh, in Acts chapter 8, we saw, uh, we saw Philip uh, moving along uh, this red line here. Philip, uh, not an apostle, but one of the seven, moving into Samaria, preaching the gospel there. And shortly after, the uh, apostles, uh, Peter and John, followed, uh, excuse me, I say Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 8. If I said Acts chapter 8, then don't correct me, I was right the first time. Acts chapter 8, after Philip preaches in Samaria, Peter and John follow up along this, uh, this blue line here, and they go into, come on, there we go, they go into Samaria as well, uh, affirming the gospel going to the Samaritans. Uh, then at the end of Acts chapter 8, we saw Philip 
moved south from Jerusalem and out west to the coast uh, on the road to Gaza where he met a, a eunuch from Ethiopia, shared the gospel with him, baptized that brother, sent him on his way to start a church in Ethiopia. And Philip continued on north through these coastal cities, uh, ultimately settling in Caesarea up here in the north. Okay, now today we're going to cover some more geography. And sometimes it's just helpful to know where these cities are and where the movement of, of things is happening. Today we're going to follow kind of this dotted blue line as uh, the Apostle Peter goes from Jerusalem, preaching through Judea, working his way to the coast, stopping in a city called Lydda, stopping in uh, the coastal town of Joppa, and then ultimately, ultimately, come on, red dot, there we go. Oh, forget it. Ultimately moving north also to Caesarea as well, okay? So that's just a picture of kind of where we've been in Acts and where we're going today. Uh, When we talk about a lot of cities and people moving around places, sometimes it's just hard to keep track of who's going where, when. And so that will help you, uh, hopefully, to have an idea of uh, where we're headed this morning. Now, let us read the summary of what happens in these chapters in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Will you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? The word of the Lord through Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, beginning in Acts 11, verse 1, says this. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them uh, in order. He said, I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorify God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God bless the reading of his word. You be seated this morning. Keep your Bibles open. Because we will be referencing uh, several of the verses and and the course of the narrative from Acts chapter 9, verse 32, all the way through the close of the passage that we just read this morning. This is the longest single narrative portion in the course of Acts surrounding Peter, his move from Jerusalem out to the coastal cities, uh, and his meeting with a man that we'll learn uh, is named Cornelius here in just a little bit. It's a lot of verses to cover, but we're covering them all together because they all uh, circulate around the common theme of the gospel going to the Gentiles this morning. 
In this text today, we find that God works in powerful ways to prove that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for all types, all kinds, all ethnicities of people. And in doing so, he reveals and corrects existing prejudices and, as we said before, blind spots in the minds of believers already living in Jerusalem and in other parts of the world at the time. As a result of looking at this passage this morning, my desire is that we would, uh, first of all, evaluate uh, our own evangelistic efforts, our own efforts with the gospel, conversations with people about the gospel, that we would evaluate our efforts for preferential blind spots. Are, are there things, are there people that we are intentionally or unintentionally not noticing or not getting the gospel to? And secondly, I pray that God would help us to submit our, pre- our prejudices, our blind spots to the divine leveling effect of the gospel of Jesus. We're going to take this narrative today sort of scene by scene. And as we do, we'll turn first to scene one. And this is in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. Here we have Peter's ministry in Judea, moving from Jerusalem out through these coastal towns. There are two events in these verses that you'll see with your Bibles open. Two events in Peter's ministry on his way to the coast that tell us much, uh, much more about the power of Jesus than they do even about the person of Peter. Certainly, we can say with confidence that Peter is continuing the ministry that Christ has given him in these cities, but it's the power of Jesus that works wonders in these areas. In, verses, in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 35, Peter goes to a city uh, named Lydda on his way out toward the coast. And there in Lydda, Peter meets with the saints there, the text tells us, with the church that's gathered in in Lydda. This tells us that the gospel in the community of believers has spread west, even even as we've already seen the gospel spread north to Samaria and to Damascus. It's now moving westward as well. Among the saints, among the church there in Lydda, is a man named Aeneas, Christian brother named Aeneas, who has been paralyzed, the text tells us, for eight years. Note what Peter says immediately upon meeting Aeneas in Acts chapter 9, verse 34. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. There is no question for us in this text, in this quick event in the life of Peter, this healing of this man named Aeneas, as to who is doing the healing here. It is the risen Lord Jesus who is healing Aeneas. It is not Peter, it is Jesus. Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. And the healing is immediate. Then, as Peter spends time there in Lydda, a beloved servant of the church in Joppa, a a city several miles west, about a three-hour walk from Lydda, a woman named Tabitha, which uh, Luke tells us, which translated in verse 36 means Dorcas, which translated one more time into English means gazelle. So that's kind of fun. A woman named Tabitha, faithful servant of the church, falls ill and dies in Joppa. And having heard that Peter is relatively near, some three hours walk away, some believers in Joppa, after having washed uh, uh, Tabitha's dead body and placed her in an upper room, they take the three-hour walk to Lydda to retrieve Peter. As Peter arrives there in Joppa, he finds many mourners, many widows, gathered together in the upper room of this house, grieving the loss of their dear, dear sister, Tabitha. Among them are widows who have brought the garments and the tunics that Dorcas, that Tabitha, had lovingly made and given to them as part of her service to the people of Christ. Much like Jesus does when in Luke's gospel, chapter 8, when Jesus raises Jairus, the synagogue ruler's daughter, from the dead, Peter goes into this upper room, like Jesus, sends everyone out of the room, 
where Tabitha's body is laying. After praying for God's will in the situation, the text tells us, he speaks two words in his native tongue, Aramaic. He says, Tabitha kum, which means Tabitha, get up. Peter's words are only one syllable different from what Jesus says to Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, verse 9. Jesus saying to the dead girl, Talitha kum, little girl, get up. The restoration of life is immediate. Dorcas, Tabitha, immediately is raised to life and with Peter's help goes among her brothers and sisters again, proving that the Lord Jesus has power to raise the dead. In this first scene in this narrative, I'd Hope that you would see that in both of these events, the word of the healings gets out. Good news has a hard way of uh, of staying quiet for very long. The news of these healings gets out. And accompanied with the word of salvation in Jesus Christ, we find that many people in Lydda and in Joppa turn to the Lord, believe in the Lord. The text tells us in Acts chapter 9, verse 35, all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, Sharon is the the region in which it is, saw him. This is Aeneas who has been healed of his, his paralysis and they turned to the Lord. Verse 43 says, uh, excuse me, verse 42 says that uh, the raising of Tabitha became known throughout all of Joppa and many believed in the Lord. Friends, the result of healing, just like it was in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John, through the power of Jesus, healed that man who was born crippled. The result of healing is, uh, is that the miracles that, that are performed, the healings that are performed, validate the gospel message that the apostles are preaching. And this powerful validation of this gospel message compels people to believe in Christ. Jesus is still on the move in Acts chapter 9. And now he's, he is moving westward as he builds his church through people being uh, brought to him in faith and in trust in his person and in his work. That brings us to scene number 2 in Acts chapter 10 verses 1 through 8. Where we meet this man named Cornelius and we are told about his vision. Scene 2, Cornelius' vision. Now, at the end of, after Peter healing Tabitha, he, he settles in with a man named Simon, who is a tanner. He's a, a, not quite a, 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 oh, I just lost the word, a person who stuffs animals, a taxidermist. He's not a taxidermist, mercy. But he tans animal hides for use in wineskins or for garments or, uh, you know, tent coverings, things like that. As Peter settles in with this man named Simon in Joppa, a man who works with animal hides, with dead animals, as a Jew who would be considered ceremonially unclean in an almost perpetual state because he's constantly in contact with dead animals. Another man, about 30 miles north, in a city called Caesarea, named Cornelius, has a vision, has a dream. Now Cornelius, like Simon the Tanner, would have been considered unclean by the Jews as well. But Cornelius would be considered unclean by the Jews in that day, not because of his occupation, not because he works with dead animals, but because of his ethnicity. You see, Cornelius is not a Jew by birth. He is a Gentile. And by this time, the Pharisees, those Jewish rulers of the day, had so strictly interpreted the law of God so as to declare that all things Gentile, whether they be people or houses or food, all things Gentile were unclean. But we find that Cornelius in this text is also a God-fearer. Like the Ethiopian of Acts chapter 8, he worships the God of Israel. He has a reverence for the God of Israel. The text tells us he prays to the God of Israel and offers alms. He gives uh, uh, charitably to those in need as lovers of the God of Israel do. 
Luke tells us he's devout both in giving alms and in prayer. And as a result, he is well respected by the Jews in that city. Acts chapter 10 verse 22 tells us. As we come to verses 3 through 8 of Acts chapter 10, we're we're, uh, introduced to or we're told the story of Cornelius' vision. We're told there that at the ninth hour, that's about 3 p.m., 3 in the afternoon, at the time of the afternoon prayer, Cornelius is visited by an angel of God in a vision, commanding him, simply commanding him to send for Simon Peter, who is in Joppa. Now, there's no further instruction here from the angel. But Acts chapter 11, verse 14, as we read earlier, says that the angel also told Cornelius that Peter would tell to him a message by which he and his whole household would be saved. This is a compelling vision. This is compelling instruction from the Lord for Cornelius. This would be a compelling, uh, this being a compelling vision to Cornelius would be compelling also to anyone. Imagine being visited by an angel and told a message like this, but most especially to a man who fears God like this Cornelius. Now, in obedience, because he loves the Lord, he knows that uh, this angel is coming from God. In obedience, he immediately sends two of his servants and one of his soldiers to go and find Peter in this town called Joppa. It's not uncommon in certain places of the world even today, particularly in the Middle Eastern and and Asian context, in, in what missionaries call the 1040 window, to hear stories of men and women who are not Christians, having dreams in which they meet a man named Jesus and are often instructed in their dreams to seek out a particular person, a particular missionary or an individual who can share with them who this Jesus is. Cornelius has a dream about an angel instructing him to go find a person who will preach to him words, a message that will bring him salvation. God works in similar ways even today among people who are far from him but whom he desires to hear the gospel. Now listen, God does not always prick the hearts of non-believers through dreams and through visions like he does here in Acts, Uh, but he does continue to do that in some places even today. Church, we should pray that for those who have little exposure to the gospel, to the news of Jesus in hard-to-reach places of the earth today, we should pray that God would lead and would guide non-believers through visions like this to compel them to seek the truth of Christ. We should pray that God would continue to work in hard-to-reach places among hard-to-reach people in miraculous ways like this, leading them to men and women who can share the gospel with them. So scene one, we have Peter's continued ministry in Judea. Scene two, Cornelius' vision. Then the scene shifts again from Caesarea and Cornelius' house back down to Joppa. Scene three, we have Peter's vision and ultimately Peter's trip to Caesarea. This is in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 16. The vision is then repeated to us, told again to us in Acts chapter 11, verses 4 through 10, which we read earlier. And then later in Acts chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. Peter's vision in Joppa is a a pivotal moment in Christian ministry, uh, which is partly why we see his vision repeated, reiterated so many times. Now the narrative picks up in Acts chapter 10, verse 9, with Peter the day after Cornelius' vision Uh, Back at Simon the Tanner's house at about uh, noon, about high noon, and Peter finding himself on the roof of Simon's house praying. Now he's hungry because he's in between their normal mid-morning meal and late afternoon meal. And uh, he may have skipped his mid-morning late breakfast, his brunch, and uh, doesn't have time to wait for dinner. So he's hungry. He asks those who are in the house to make some food for him and he goes up on the roof to pray. And as he's praying, the text tells us, there he fell into a trance 
where he saw a vision of a picnic blanket of sorts with all sorts of food on it, all sorts of kosher and non-kosher foods. Now, those of you who are familiar with uh, the book of Leviticus, and I hope that's all of you. Leviticus is a good book in the Old Testament. You need to read it. Those of you who are familiar with Leviticus know that God gave to his people Israel specific laws about what they could or what they could not eat, uh, kosher laws as we know them, uh, clean foods and unclean foods, uh, uh, dietary, dietary restrictions that set apart God's people as holy from the rest of the world. Peter sees on this picnic blanket being descended from heaven all sorts of food, both kosher and non-kosher, clean animals and unclean animals. And in this vision, uh, this blanket is accompanied, the descending blanket is accompanied by the voice of God, commanding Peter to get up, to kill, and to eat. But Peter, being a faithful Jew, who has never eaten unkosher food in his life, refuses to eat anything declared unclean by the law of God says, Lord, how could I? I've never put anything unclean in my mouth. And the Lord comes back to him. The voice comes back to him again and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this vision is replayed two more times in Peter's life. Peter has this thing with threes, right? Threefold denial of Christ, threefold uh, restoration of ministry by Jesus at the end of John. He has to see this vision three times to really get the meaning At the end of it, we find in verse 17, Peter being rather perplexed as to its meaning. Peter's confused. He's not sure what all of this means. I want to make a connection here that the text makes for us between table fellowship, sharing meals with people, and gospel ministry. Throughout the scriptures, hospitality, particularly in the form of sharing meals, is a hallmark of God's people. All throughout the Old Testament, we see God commanding His people to be hospitable, to share meals with people who are not like them, with strangers, with visitors who come through. Hospitality to strangers and to those in need is an illustration of the welcome that God has given to His people through salvation. It's a picture of the fellowship that we have with God at God's initiative. God is hospitable to us in sending Christ to die for the forgiveness of our sins that we might fellowship with Him. And God expects His people to be hospitable as well. Now, Peter's reception of the vision here in Acts chapter 10 and his command to eat of all foods, clean and unclean, has a clear connection to table fellowship, to hospitality with people who do not follow Jewish dietary laws. For Peter to thus be enabled to receive and to extend table fellowship with Gentiles is to free Peter up, to unbind him, to extend also the fellowship of the gospel to Gentiles as well. There's much in common between Peter's vision of of clean and unclean foods coming down and being commanded to eat and and the implication this has for sharing food even with Gentiles and and the parable of the great banquet that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 22 and also in Luke chapter 14. The parable of the great banquet that Jesus tells is a wonderful parable that relates the truth of salvation that God has prepared, a time of intimate and joyous celebration and fellowship for his people, for Israel, the invited guests to this gospel, uh, gospel fellowship. Yet in being despised by the invited guests in this parable that Jesus tells, God then we see turns and opens the door to the poor, to the lame, to the homeless, to Gentiles and undesirables. What God is doing in Acts chapter 10 in this vision to Peter is fulfilling the truth of, uh, of the parable that Jesus tells about the kingdom. That the kingdom of God is not just for the invited guests. It's not just for Israel. It's also for all who will be, uh, who, who will be compelled to come in from the highways and the byways. 
Peter has this vision in verses 9 through 16. And after he has this vision, we see a group of people arrive from Caesarea, the group that Cornelius had previously sent down. Simultaneously with Peter's vision on the rooftop, the messengers who are sent by Cornelius arrive at Simon the Tanner's house. Back on the roof, the Holy Spirit says in verse 20 to Peter to tell him that there were men waiting for him and that he should follow them, as the Holy Spirit says, without hesitation. Don't wait. Wherever they ask you to go, Peter, you go with them. So Peter goes back down to the, uh, to the front door of the house. He meets with the, with the men and revealing uh, himself and who he is, Peter hears their orders from Cornelius and he brings them in to eat and to stay the night, to share a meal together. In verses 23 through 33 of Acts chapter 10, we see the group the next day moving north to Joppa, or north from Joppa to Caesarea. And as they arrive there the next day, Peter and men, with the three, of, three of Peter's compatriots and, and, and uh, Cornelius' men that he sent to, this whole party goes back to Cornelius. And there at Cornelius' house, they find many of his friends and relatives all gathered together in their home. And as Peter enters, Cornelius tries to worship Peter, the text tells us, but Peter rightly and gently rebukes his worship and directs it back to God alone. He says, he says to Cornelius, get up, I too am only a man. You don't worship me, I'm just a man. In verses 27 through 29, Peter explains to Cornelius that according to the Pharisaic laws, the laws of the Pharisees, that it was improper, it was even potentially illegal, Peter says, unlawful for him to meet in a Gentile's home. Now, biblically, for a Jew to meet in a Gentile's home was never prohibited in the law of God, but it was a later addition, a later interpolation upon the law by the Pharisees. Nevertheless, in accordance with his previous vision, Peter knows that God has declared no person unclean or uncommon. And having now come without hesitation with Cornelius' men, a very good thing, Peter asks for the reason for which he was sent. In verse uh, 29, of Acts chapter 10. Peter's explained all that has happened and why he's here. And we see him saying, so when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then why you sent for me. Now there's a little bit of humor in this situation, I think for us as readers to see. First, Peter, who has received the vision from the Lord that he rightly understands to mean that the Gentiles are not unclean people, does not himself yet see that the Gentiles are needing to hear the gospel. That's kind of funny, maybe more ironic than it is funny. It's unclear as to whether Peter finds them unworthy of the gospel at this point. And that does not seem to be the case, but his obtuseness, his thick-headedness, certainly adds to the situation, making it somewhat humorous for us. But secondly, Peter, the gospel herald from the beginning of of Acts, who, who all throughout the gospels and all throughout Acts, Uh, is the first, always the first, to speak, to initiate gospel proclamation with new people and new audiences, here suddenly in the home of this man Cornelius, finds himself speechless, finds himself with nothing to say. I've known people who always have something to say at every given moment, and it's rare to find them speechless. And like Peter is like that guy. Peter is the gospel dude who's been gospeling all around Judea. And now he comes to a new group of people who haven't heard the gospel yet, and he's speechless. Verses 30 through 33 then take up with Cornelius answering about his vision. And he says to Peter this, 
We read, Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. Your alms have been remembered before God. Send, therefore, to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Cornelius says, Peter, you do what you do so well. Tell us what the Lord has told you. So in verses 34 through 43, the scene shifts again here in Cornelius' house to now Peter preaching the gospel for the very first time to people of non-Jewish heritage, to non-Jewish people. At Cornelius' prompting in verse 33, Peter immediately, we might would say, finally, does what he has so effectively and boldly done in Judea and Samaria up to this point. He preaches the gospel. And in his gospel presentation, Peter hits all of the high notes. He hits all of the critical issues of the gospel. He says in verse 36 that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He tells Cornelius and those in his house in verses 37 and 38 that Jesus was baptized in Galilee, anointed by the Holy Spirit, miraculously expelled Satan and his influence everywhere that he went by the power of God. In verses 39 through 41, he says that Jesus was crucified and resurrected, witnessed to in his risen state, physical risen state, by the apostles and by others to be witnesses to his resurrection and his ascension. In verse 42, Peter tells Cornelius and those who are listening that Jesus commanded his disciples to continue his mission of gospel preaching, and that's precisely what Peter is doing. And finally, in verse 43, as Peter is wrapping up his sermon, or maybe he's just getting going, I don't know, Jesus, he says, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the prophets, uh, uh, the promise uh, for forgiveness from God for all who repent and believe. Peter, finally, getting what God has sent him there to do, preaches the gospel with all the gusto that that Peter knows how to preach the gospel with. And even as he is preaching, the scene shifts again slightly. In verses 44 through 48, the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter's preaching. And this morning you're saying, Pastor, we wish he would interrupt yours too. The Holy Spirit interrupts Peter's preaching with a miraculous manifestation of his falling upon and indwelling the lives of the people there. We have in verses 44 through 48 what is called the Gentile Pentecost. In verse 44, before Peter is even finished with his sermon, the people, prese- the people who are present in Cornelius' house, find themselves baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 40 says, While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles in Cornelius' house in the same way that he fell on the apostles and the disciples in Acts chapter 2. The same way that he falls upon the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. The point here is not, friends, that we need to seek or to emulate or to pursue this kind of physical and miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit each week when we gather or every time a new believer comes to faith in Jesus or in the worship of the church, but rather that the Holy Spirit at key times, at critical times, in the spread of the gospel validates his indwelling with consistent, physically evident markers in every instance. He falls on the disciples in Acts chapter 2 in a certain way, speaking in tongues as they're praising God. He falls upon the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8 as they go about praising God. He falls upon the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, and we find them there speaking in tongues and praising God. The Holy Spirit coming in and dwelling physically Uh, and in manifest ways, people in the same way, time after time after time. In verses 45 and 46, we find 
and the falling of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost-like fashion surprises those Jewish believers who came with Peter from Joppa. For they clearly had not expected that the Gentiles were even able to receive the Holy Spirit. We read there in verse 45, The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. The Holy Spirit that falls upon these people, the way that He falls, that it is the Holy Spirit Himself, is undeniable because the same things are happening with the Gentiles that happened with the apostles in Acts chapter 2. These Jewish believers, seeing the, the Holy Spirit fallen Gentiles, are saying, this is exactly what happened to us. Something is going on here. In verses 47 and 48 of Acts chapter 10, with the undeniable evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit now in the lives of these Gentile believers, Peter takes the next, next logical step, which we're glad for. He doesn't have to be told. He makes this conclusion on his own to remove any denial of the need for baptism for these new believers in Jesus. And he commands them all to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, the scene shifts one last time to its conclusion. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, which we read as we began, which summarize all, all of the events of Acts chapter 10. Peter and his compatriots go back to Jerusalem to report to the home church, to the home base, all that has been happening in Caesarea. In verses 1 through 3 of chapter 11, we find that word of the Gentiles who had received the gospel and the Holy Spirit quickly spreads throughout Judea. And as Peter and the others return to Jerusalem, they are met in Jerusalem with criticism from those uh, Jewish persons affiliated with the church who are called the circumcision party for having met with and ate, met and ate with Gentiles in Caesarea. Verses 4 through 15 encapsulate of chapter 11, encapsulate Peter's retelling of what happened in Acts chapter 10. He responds to their criticism by recalling all that had happened in the days before. He tells the Jews in Jerusalem about his vision, about the Lord's declaration of cleanness of all people, uh, about the messengers that came from Cornelius. He tells those in Jerusalem about the, or he retells Cornelius's uh, vision and what, uh, uh, what Cornelius heard from the Lord. He recalls to them the preaching of the gospel and most especially the falling of the Holy Spirit. Verses 16 and 17 of our text this morning of Acts chapter 11. We find Peter going further to explain that he recalled the words of Jesus prior to his ascension in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Recalling before all those in Jerusalem who said, Remember when Jesus said that we would be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Furthermore, Peter says, If God saw fit to baptize the Gentiles with the Holy Spirit in the same manner as us Jewish believers at Pentecost, how do we have any right to withhold full membership in the community of believers and in the church at large from these people upon whom the Holy Spirit has fallen? Peter said, I had a blind spot once, but now I see. I see what God is doing. I see God's redemptive purposes in the world. And, and, and if this is what God is doing, I either, I either need to get on board or I need to quit altogether. And he's giving the same challenge to those in the church that day. As our text closes this morning, at the end of Acts chapter, uh, the end of our verses, Acts chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, we find that on hearing Peter's compelling explanation of all that had happened in the course of Acts chapter 10, the entire crowd falls silent. Perhaps they're convicted about the truth of what Peter has said and the resulting implications for them. 
Perhaps they're just shocked. They're surprised. It's everything that has gone on. But we find that as the hearers come to their senses, they respond by glorifying God for extending his redemptive plan and his redemptive work outside the house of Israel. And together they commit that the gospel shall go to the Gentiles as well, since God himself has seen fit to send salvation to the house of Cornelius. Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Friends, you who are of non-Jewish heritage, non-Jewish birth this morning, you are the direct recipients, you who trust Jesus, of the promise of Acts chapter 11, verse 18, that the gospel will go to Gentiles. Brother, sister, you're a Gentile, you're not a, Jew, uh, not a Jew by birth. You praise God for his, the vision that he gave to Peter, the work that he did in Cornelius' life, Peter's obedience to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and in the face of criticism to defend the work of God among Gentiles, because had he not, you would not have received today what you had, the, the, the investment, the, you would not have been entrusted with the gospel even in your own life. So praise God for Acts chapter 9 through 11. Because you're the recipients of this good news. But friend, also we need to take Acts chapter 9 verse 32 through chapter 11 verse 18. And we need to look at it. We need to use it. We need to glean from it principles to shape our own lives. To shape our own lives with this gospel that has now gone to the Gentiles. Four or five things I want to point out to us this morning. As we shape our lives with this text. First of all, realize this. That Jesus moves in the mundane. So you, Christian, you be on mission everywhere you go. Our passage began today with Peter going about doing what he knew God had called him to do with faithfulness. He's moving about in the cities, moving uh, westward toward the coast, preaching the gospel everywhere he goes. It's just what Peter did. It was his life. It's his calling. But often I think we get caught up in the office of apostle that Peter held. And we think that evangelism and discipleship are only for those who are specially called by God. That's the pastor's job. That's the evangelist's job. That's the missionary's job. In doing that, though, Christian, we fail to see that every vocation, every career path is a calling of God. That every vocation should be approached with gospel-colored lenses. Your work may seem mundane. But God has put you there as his gospel ambassador in that place. You may see your high school or your college campus as just the place where you have to take classes, where you have to go to get a degree, to get ahead in life. But Christian, God has put you there to be on mission. So whether you go to Hope Christian School or Volcano Vista or any of the other Cibola uh, 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 or any of the other high schools around, whether you're a student at CNM or UNM or New Mexico State or some other online campus, God has placed you there as an ambassador for Christ. Senior adult, your retirement is a vocation. Your grandchildren are your mission field. Your retirement hobbies and clubs are God's intended ways of connecting you to people who even in their golden years need to hear the gospel. So put on your gospel glasses to see the lostness around you and also the ways that Jesus is already moving in unexpected ways, preparing hearts to hear the good news of him. Secondly, from this text, we see that Jesus is Lord of all. So brother, sister, Christian, you be a gospel neighbor to all. Peter says to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, that God shows no partiality. 
no favoritism, that God is no respecter of persons, and moreover, that his son, Jesus, as we see in verse 36, is Lord of all peoples, Peter says. Now, for Peter, it takes a vision from the Lord to make it clear to him that God in Christ is making a way for people of all nations, all languages, all social and economic backgrounds to be saved. It takes a divine intervention in Peter, the apostle's life, to show this to him. Because the Lord of all has love for all, his people then have no excuse to do differently. Friend, you have no excuse to do differently than what Peter's conviction was after seeing his vision. Because God has seen fit to commune, to fellowship with sinners of all stripes. So we, like Peter, should be ready to love as neighbors, people of all stripes. Look, this is the blind spot in Peter's theology. This is the blind spot in Peter's ministry. That gospel fellowship could cross the racial Jew-Gentile barrier. But when the light of the gospel shines on this blind spot in Peter's life, the blind spot becomes immediately visible. And Peter responds to it in obedience to Christ. Christian, have you considered that you too may have blind spots in your pursuit of loving God and loving your neighbor? Are there people you would not consider a neighbor worthy of love, worthy of relationship, worthy of sharing a meal with? I would challenge all of us to reread this passage this week. And with it, to read Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The gospel, friends, the good news that God saves sinners through faith in Jesus Christ does not make us colorblind in a racial sense, but it does shine the light of truth upon the reality that all men and women are made in the image of God, deserving of dignity and respect, created to know God, that, that God intends for them to hear the gospel and respond in faith to be saved from their sins, and that only through faith in his Son. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Christian, you be a gospel neighbor to all. Third, just as Jesus died for every people group, so you share his gospel without exclusion. Now, Peter and the other Jews in Acts chapter 11, their predisposition was to exclude Gentiles from the gospel mission. They're just going among the Jews and those with semi-Jewish heritage like the Samaritans. But as Peter has shown, and as John says in his first letter, 1 John 2, 2, Christ died for the sins of the whole world. This means, friends, that there is not a soul on this earth for whom faith in Christ and repentance of sin cannot save. There's no one who is unsavable. Now, we are just as prone as Peter, however, to keep the gospel to people who are more like us than unlike us. We have a predisposition to share Christ with people that we think are more likely to respond in faith to him. Friends, the good news of Jesus is not just for people who resemble what we see in the mirror. It's for those whose skin is lighter than ours and darker. It is for those who wear suits to work every day and for those who cannot afford to even buy a pair of shoes that fit properly. It is for the prototypical nuclear American family with 2.3 kids and a dog. And the gospel is for single moms and grandparents who are raising their grandkids. The gospel is for the single. It's for the married. It's for the straight-laced and for the hipster. Some of you don't know what hipsters are. They wear tight pants and ankle boots. The gospel is for the Republican and the Democrat and the Independent and the Socialist. Friends, there is literally, literally no person on earth that the gospel is not 
for. And as the gospel goes to a diverse world, to a world of many different peoples from many different backgrounds and many different cultures, Jesus creates for himself, as those people come to faith in him, a diverse people who are submitted to him as Lord. Which brings us to point number four, that Jesus creates a diverse people of God, as he creates a diverse people of God. So we also must strive for diversity in the local church. We must strive for diversity in the local church. Does this mean that a church in the suburbs should look like the inner city? Does this mean that urban churches should look like rural ones? No, not necessarily. I think churches should look like the makeup of the suburbs, the communities, the regions in which they find themselves. Just because our church happens to be uh, planted here in the center of Taylor Ranch doesn't mean we're only seeking to reach Taylor Ranch. Praise God, he's brought people from all over the city to our church to be a part of this gospel family so that they can also go back out and, and be gospel witnesses in the different places that they live. But any church, friends, that is made up of people who all look the same, who, who are all from the same generation, all from the same socioeconomic stratum, are churches who have not embraced fully the diversity of heaven and the beauty of God in the many peoples of the earth. It takes work to fight for diversity in the local church. It means reaching people we would normally avoid. It means embracing discomfort and unfamiliarity for the sake of the greater glory of God in the diversity of his people in the local church. And, and this, pursuing this, is an entirely godly thing to do. I pray that you would see that this morning. close friend of mine, pastor, shared with me recently uh, a dream that he had. A friend of mine is not a particularly spiritual person. To, I, I mean, he's a pastor, so he's spiritual. But he doesn't put a ton of stock into dreams and things like that, knowing that you know our minds and our hearts can deceive us. But he told me of a dream that he had one day. He said, Brother, I was, I was preaching in uh, my church one Sunday in this dream. And in the middle of of the preaching, the whole sound system just went wonky. It just went crazy. Like nothing, nothing was, was working. As I was preaching, this strange demonic sound came screaming out of the speakers. He said the, the audiovisual team and I immediately started scrambling in the back to try to figure out what was going on while the, the church stayed in their seats and were just kind of waiting. He said time went by and and, uh, and about a quarter to 12, when we normally round out our service, he said, I looked up and, and all of our normal church people had left. He said it was 1145 and whether stuff had been preached or not, they were gone. And so they left. He said in the middle of all that, we we're still trying to figure out what in the world was going on with our audio, with, with our audio system and just trying to make sense of it all. He said, when I, when I turned around uh, and looked up from the, the audio booth and I saw coming through the door of the worship center, people that I'd never seen before. Guys in leather motorcycle vests and women with tattoos from neck to toenail and old people and young people with children. Pe- people who, who I knew, I don't know how I knew, it's in a dream, but I knew, right, that, that had substance abuse problems. People from all different walks of life that normally would not, would not have darkened the doors of the church. He said to me, brother, I looked and I saw these people and they're sitting in the seats, sitting there waiting to hear the word of God preached. He said to me, he said, I, I went to my, my worship pastor and I told him, um, buddy, get your guitar on. We got to have church. And the response was, well, we still got to figure out what's going on with the audiovisual thing. And, and my friend's response in the dream to his worship pastor was, I don't care what we got to do. These people have come to hear the word. We're going to give the word to them. 
that dream for my friend. I, I, I don't put a lot of stock into stuff like that either. But brothers and sisters, it, it has Im- impacted me. It has affected me. Listen, there are people who are not like us in this community and, and, and in the city in which we live that need to hear the gospel, that want to hear a word from the Lord. Will we be those who are standing ready to receive them in, in gospel love and to share the, the good news of salvation with them? Or are we going to leave at 1145 because time's up? Jesus creates a diverse people for himself. We need to strive for diversity in the local church. Fifth and finally, we learn from this passage today that the gospel of salvation is hope for all. It is hope for everyone. So you, friend, who have trusted Jesus for 60 years, or maybe you've never trusted Jesus yet, place all your trust in the Lord Jesus for your salvation. Wherever you're from, Whatever you've been through, however impossible you think it may be for God to forgive you of your sins today, dear friend, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. Don't miss that. My dear friend, his love is for you. God's love is for you. And he showed his love for sinners like you by sending his son Jesus to pay that penalty for your sins as he died on the cross. Listen, you don't have to fix yourself up to be saved by Jesus. You need only to trust in him, believing his death was for your sins. His resurrection from the dead was for your eternal life. Friend, all you need to do today to be saved is to make him king of your heart, king of your life. Submit to his reign, his rule in your heart, and allow him to bring your thoughts, your actions, your character into consistency with his own. You may feel like you're far from God today, friends, but but you're not. You don't need to clean yourself up to prove anything to God. He's done all the work for you in his son on the cross, died in your place and was, rose, and was raised from the dead. To be saved, to have hope, you need only to trust in him. I pray you do that this morning. Let's